first of all, I'd like to dedicate this class in honor of Le'ilu Nishmas of my brother, Samach Yeshua Ben Yibadol Chaim Hev Maruchim, Baruch Shalom Eliyahu. I'm not going to start speaking about him right now, but he was literally an angel in human form, as my brother said. He taught us humility, he taught us love, and this chapter is really all about that. And I feel like my brother lived with this kind of consciousness, and this should be Le'ilu Nishmasai, and we should have Mashiach right now. Amen. Amen. So let's get back to where we were. This chapter in Tanya is a whole new section in Tanya. Let's remember why the Alta Rebbe wrote the Tanya. Does anybody remember what we spoke about on the title page? The entire Tanya was written in order to explain, yes, Mushka. To love a fellow Jew like yourself. To love a fellow Jew like yourself, it is definitely an important principle of the entire Torah. But it's not like a and it, it, the, Rabbi Akiva says that is the uh, main principle of the entire Torah. So you are 100% right that loving a fellow Jew, it is central to Judaism. And yet there's one verse in the entire Torah that the Alter Rebbe wrote an entire book to explain. And that is, for this matter is very near to you in your ma- mouth and in your heart that you may do it. And he said, I will explain this to you in a way that is arucha ukutsara, long and short. Now, the first way to understand that. Hi, Zizi, welcome. The first way to understand that is very simply. There's ways of doing things that seem to be short, but in fact, they are very long. Hi, Rivka. And there's ways that seem long, but actually are short. And the, uh, this expression is taken from the Talmud in a story that I've told many times before, but I will say it again. And it's the story of Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania, who's trying to get to the city. And he sees a little boy sitting at the crossroads. And he says, little boy, which way is there to, the, to get to the city? And he says, they both lead to the city, but this one is the short and long road, and this one is the long and short road. He says, short sounds better. I'll do the short and long road. He takes the short road. He tries to get to the city, but it's blocked by private orchards and vineyards. He cannot get in. He gets back, and he says, little boy, didn't you tell me that that, sh- that that road was short? And he said, well, didn't I also tell you that the road was long? <laughs> and he kissed him on the head, and he said, Look at all these Jewish people. The little ones are so wise. So what it means, the short but long way, is it feels like you're getting there very fast. You know those moments of inspiration that you get? Like those parenting books that you read that seem like they're just going to change your life forever? You read it and it's like, this is it. I got it. I'm so inspired. And then three days later, it's back to the same old. What happened? What happened was you were not able to integrate it. So that's the short but long way. It's the inspirational things that we get, the quick highs that you want to hear something really inspiring that's just going to move us and change us forever. But change doesn't happen like that. Change happens in a step-by-step, integrative fashion. And that's the method of the Alta Rebbe. So it takes longer. You're going to have to work. But it's tried but tr- and true. You'll actually get into the city. You won't be blocked. A, a scientific experiment that cannot pr- uh, produce the same results the next time is not scientific at all. You know, one day something inspires you, the next day you're not inspired. There's nothing predictable about that. The Alter Rebbe's method is, this is going to take you a long time. You're going to have to work. It's not going to be easy. You can't just rely on me. It's not like, oh, you're the tzaddik, and, and you know, I'll just come to you here and there from like words of inspiration and a bracha, and I'm all fixed. No, no. You're going to have to work on your own. But when you get there, you're actually going to get there. What does get there mean? It means, it's one thing if the verse said that this is very close to you, that you may do it. You can just, or even that you may say it. 
but what the Torah said is very close to you that you can feel it. It has to be in your heart. So to just kind of do behaviors that you don't feel emotionally aligned with, that you don't have a relationship with, is, is easy. But to be emotionally aligned with that, so the altar said, I'm going to explain to you how it's very near to you. So in the first 17 chapters, the altar taught us about how to activate our emotions for Hashem. And the way to activate that is through the mind. You need to study about Hashem. You need to meditate upon Him. There are certain principles you have to understand. And once you get that, you work on yourself so that you develop a deep relationship with Hashem in your heart. Now, finally, in the last chapter that we did, in the first section, chapter 17, the Alter Rebbe said, I'm aware that there are some people, maybe many people, who can't actually, even though they meditate and they work on themselves, they can't actually have a palpable relationship with Hashem in their heart. It just doesn't, it's not that kind of bubbly excitement, but they have a strong conviction in their mind, and that affects their heart, and for them, that's enough. But tell me, is that really very close? You work so hard, you try to produce emotions, and the best you end up with is it just a very strong conviction that gets your heart like in line? It's hard to say that that's very close. So the altar now in this chapter is taking us on a whole different trajectory. So the Hasidim explained that it's not just that the altar taught us the long but short way, meaning that this is a you know, more difficult method, but when you get there, you're really gonna arrive. He actually taught us two ways. He taught us a long way and he taught us a short way. The long way was the, the method of chapters 1 through 17. Use your mind, get into your heart, and activate your emotions. But in this chapter, through, through chapter 25, he's going to teach us a different way, and that is the short way. Now, why teach us both? Because we need both. In the beginning of Shir Hashirim, Shlomo HaMelech wrote Shir Hashirim. It's the like, love song between Hashem and the Jewish people. and and. It says, Basi Lagani Achaisi Kala. I have come to the garden to my garden, my sister, my bride. And Chasidah speaks about two different relationships that a Jew has with Hashem. We have one as a sister, and we have one as a wife, a bride. And we need both of those relationships. There's something about a relationship with your sibling that just is unlike any other relationship, and that is you are it's innate. Even if you hate each other, you love each other. Even if you want to get away from each other, you can't. They're always going to be a part of your heart. On the other hand, there's something about the relationship with a spouse that a sibling does not have and should not have, and that is the electricity of the relationship, the fire, the passion that gets you going and excited. And in our relationship with Hashem, we need both. On one hand, we need to work with our mind, and when we work with our mind and truly understand something, it becomes who we are, and we built, we built it, and then we get this, like it pervades our whole personality, not just a little bit about a part of ourselves. The one that we create with our mind, when we really get it and we align ourselves with that intellectually, it changes us. And there's an electricity and a passion. It also, just like a, a human relationship between spouses, there's times that there's very much electricity and there's times that it's more calm. On the other hand, the sibling relationship, although it's calm and placid, but it's there forever. It never goes away. And um, in fact, I heard like a, a cryptic explanation, a story of the, uh, excuse me, an explanation of the cryptic story in the Torah of Abraham and Sarah going down to Egypt. I mean, there are so many questions you can ask on that story, but here he's worried for his life and he says to her, listen, I know they're going to want to kill me in order to take you, 
So, Imrina Chaysiya, say you are my sister. Say you are my sister? I mean, what about her? So, there's a lot of different explanations to that story. I mean, um, Kabbalah explains that Abraham saw an angel going down to protect her. He didn't know that he was going to be protected. So, he knew nothing bad was going to happen to her, and he relied on her merit. But this is also a depiction of the soul's journey down here. Our soul is coming down to a land of Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim means constrictions. We're going to come down here. We have this amazing relationship with Hashem up above. And then we come down here and we're afraid we're going to lose our passion. And we say we're coming down to Mitzrayim. When we go down to this Ervas Ha'aris, this depraved place, please say you are my sister. Remember that even in the hard times, we have this relationship with Hashem that although we don't feel the fiery passion, it's innate. It's strong. And it never is going to go away. And this is the relationship that we're going to explore in this chapter. It's, it's the bomb. This is like, you understand this point. This is incredible. This is life-changing. And it shows the relationship that a Jewish person has with Hashem that is just irreplaceable. And um, to, the author was like explaining to us our deepest aspirations, who we really are. It reminds me of the joke story of a, rab, a merchant and his wagon driver that are traveling to business, and they get captured by a group of robbers. And the Jewish community pays their ransom, they release them, the two guys come out, and each of them say, I'm the merchant, and he's the wagon driver. I mean, who cares who's the merchant and the wagon driver? But the reason why they're each wanting to be the merchant is because the Torah says that when you give a poor person money, it should be de machsare asher yachsarlai. Give him what he lacks. So if he's the merchant, you have to give him more money to get him on his feet for business. So they're like, we can't figure this out. Bring it to the rabbi. So they bring the case to the rabbi, and the rabbi says, guys, this case is very complicated. We'll have to deal with it tomorrow morning. For now, I just need to get you guys comfortable for the night. What is it that you need? So the first guy says, listen, I need a toothbrush, toothbrush, some shampoo, a bottle of cologne, and a clean change of clothing, please. I just feel gross. I need to get into shower, get into bed, and fine, we'll talk about it tomorrow morning. And the other guy's like, listen, I need a big loaf of bread and some herring, pickles, and some whiskey. And so the rabbi says, well, this is the merchant, and this is the wagon driver. <laughs> Our aspirations define us. And this chapter, the author was explaining to us, even if we don't know it, our deepest aspirations are to be one with Hashem. And that is truly what defines us and makes us unique as a Jewish people. So let's get straight to the chapter. We're going to go to the Hebrew words. I'll read them in Hebrew and I'll translate them to English. To explain more clearly and more precisely the word very in the verse, for this thing is very near to you, the word very indicates that it is an extremely simple matter to serve Hashem with one's heart, with love and fear of Hashem. In the previous chapter, the Alter Rebbe, and I keep using the term Alter Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe means the grand old rabbi. He is the founder of Chabad movement, and he is the author of the Tanya. So he's known as Rip Schneer Zalman of Liadi. He's known as the Baal HaTanya, which is the author of the Tanya. But I'm going to just call him the Alter Rebbe. So when I say Alter Rebbe, you know it means the author of the Tanya. The Alter Rebbe explained that a love of Hashem is readily attainable through meditation on Hashem's greatness, whereby one can generate at least an intellectual love to Vuna. Yet it cannot be said of profound meditation that it is very near to you. 
צרח לידה נאמנה, כי אף מי שדי תהיה קצר בידיעת השם, ואין לי לב להבין בדיעות אין זה ברוך הוא, one should recognize with certainty that even the person who has only a limited understanding of Hashem's greatness, that he lacks the materials necessary for meditation, and he has no heart to comprehend the greatness of the blessed infinite God, his mind and heart are not suited to meditation, so that he lacks the tools of meditation, to produce through meditation a fear and love, even in his mind and understanding alone, how much more so is he unable to produce a vibrant, fervent love and fear. Yet it is very near thing for him to guard himself from transgressing the prohibitive commandments through a fear of Hashem and to practice the positive commandments which require a love of Hashem, these together comprising all the commandments of the Torah and particularly the study of the Torah which counterbalances them all. So he's saying, you have to know this. You have to get it. He says, you have to know, lay down the money. You have to know this very, very clearly. No matter what your capabilities are, if you don't have the mind for it, if you don't have the heart for it, some people, they have a mind, they're smart, but when it comes to the abstractions or thinking about Hashem, their mind just doesn't, it doesn't resonate with them. And some people, they understand worlds and worlds of stuff, but then what they understand actually doesn't produce any emotions for them. They have like a block. In fact, it's called the, the restriction of the throat. The sephiros are, are um, corresponding to all the limbs of the body. So the three intellectual sephiros are for the three brains in the head, and then there's the, the arms and the legs, the trunk. But there's actually no sephira that corresponds to the throat. The, the throat represents the passageway from the mind to the heart. It's called a nas- narrow passageway. It's called mitzrayim. And that's where a lot of stuff gets stuck. <laughs> A lot of things get stuck. We understand so much, but when it comes to our everyday behavior, how we're going to act according to what we know, that's where we have so much difficulty. So everybody has their thing where it's not so easy for them. And the author says, You have to know very well that it still is completely within your reach to keep everything of the Torah, every single thing. And he specifies Talmud Torah because Talmud Torah is a difficult mitzvah to fulfill. Um, women don't have this mitzvah the same way the men have the mitzvah because the men have the mitzvah that any free moment they need to be studying Torah. Women don't have those kind of free moments. They don't. They don't have this. It's called. It's, they don't have this mitzvah because they have other responsibilities. Mital. <laughs> they don't have this this type of responsibility. But a man to be sure that every free moment that he was able to learn Torah, he learned Torah. That's very difficult to say. And the altar was saying, you have to know no matter what your capabilities, no matter how limited you are, it is very, very close to you. Now let's go even further what he says. He can fulfill all this in his mouth and in his heart, in the true sense of heart, that is not only in the superficial sense of the word heart, which means to say in his thoughts, but in the true sense of with heart, namely with feeling from the depths of his heart, in absolute sincerity with love and fear, as opposed to the tavuna emotions, which cannot properly be called love and fear. They are so designated only insofar as they motivate one's actions. Okay, because remember in chapter 13, we were speaking out what is truth? We had to say that there has to be a difference between the way that tzaddik loves Hashem and the way the average person loves Hashem. We were like being honest. The tzaddik's love of Hashem is like a true love. It's absolute. It takes him through. It pervades his very being. The average man, I mean, he can't get those kind of emotions. 
And so he has to produce them. He has to work hard to produce them. And they fluctuate. So there's times of the day or even times in his life where he feels on high and then times that they kind of dissipate. And something that dissipates can't be called 100% genuine. It's like the, the terminology in the Talmud of the, the lying river, which is a river that dries up once, seven, once in seven years. Right now it's a, ri a river, but in seven years, if it's not a river, even right now we don't call it a river. So we were saying about the Bedouin's love that although it's not the truth of the tzaddik's love, nevertheless there is a truth to it because you know, it's predictable and he knows it's going to come regularly at certain times. It's not just a happenstance, he works for it. But here the author was saying about this type of love that we're speaking about in this chapter, it's the same. For a tzaddik, for a rasha, even for a rasha, we all have this love and it's 100% true, it's 100% genuine, it takes through the essence of our personality. And this is like a paradigm shift. I mean, he's giving us a new introduction to ourselves that we wouldn't even have thought of ourselves that highly. You know, sometimes you have to revisit things that you think and say, well, why do I think that way? There's a, there's a really great story in Professor Green's book where he was like a graduate student he was visiting some dinosaur museum, and he was so fascinated how they were able to interpolate how to put the bones of the dinosaur, you know, where, how far spaced apart and where to fit each one. And then he's looking at this beautiful, huge model of a dinosaur, and he says to the technician who's standing and showing the dinosaur, he says, well, why is this dinosaur green? And he says, because dinosaurs are green. And then he says, now you have to remember that although they were able to find the fossils of bones to construct dinosaurs, they have no proof of the appearance of the dinosaur's skin. So then the technician is like, uh, well, wait a moment. What color do you think the dinosaur should be? So he said, I don't know, maybe yellow with pink polka dots. And so Professor Green, who was just a student then, looks at him and says, he said, I mean, the technician looks at the student and says, Whoever saw a yellow dinosaur? So he said, well, whoever saw a green one? <laughs> and that's the point. We're so set in our ways. We think, for sure, dinosaurs are green. We look at ourselves, we say, for sure, our love is not genuine. You know what? All the things that I've done in my life, all the mistakes that I made, how bad I am, how could it be that I have this deep-seated, rooted love of Hashem within my heart? So we have to be open to the message of today's Tanya and realize that well, maybe we're not viewing ourselves properly. There's something that we just take for granted that doesn't have to be that way. It's like the example that, I know Cheryl has heard this one before, and that is of the guy sitting in the circus. He's so in wonderment. This huge elephant that is chained around the leg, and he's following this tiny little man compared to him who's leading him around the circus. What forces this guy to follow, what forces the elephant to follow this guy who he can literally trample? And why is this chain that he can bust in one second keeping him shackled? And then he realized that they didn't have the elephant starting out when it was an adult. They started with a baby elephant. And the baby elephant couldn't break loose of the shackles and it had to listen to the trainer. But now as an adult, although it has new powers, it still feels trapped by the chain that it can bust in a moment or the man who it can trample. And so we, we limit ourselves because we have these preconceived notions about who we are and what we can achieve. And we have to just break free of that and say, no, one second, let's be open to the message and realize there's something essentially different about me that I can tap into and totally change. I can just access something new about myself. So what is this love? The love and fear of which the altar will now speak are emotions in the fullest sense of the word. 
But how can one acquire a true love and fear of Hashem if he is incapable of meditation? In answer, the author continues, Shehi ahava mesuteras shebelev klolos Yisrael, shehi Yerushalanu me'aveseinu. This is the hidden love present in the heart of all Jews, which is an inheritance to us from our patriarchs. Since every Jew already possesses this love as an inheritance, he need not create it through meditation. All that is required of him is that he arouse it and implement it in his observance of the mitzvahs. In order to understand how one goes about doing so, the author first discusses the characteristics of this love. So here's a new idea. We don't have to create this love. We do not have to invent it. We just have to access it. It's like... I took piano lessons for a little bit when I was a kid, and my teacher was frustrated with me, and she said, Rachel, the music has already been invented. You just have to look in the book. <laughs> you know, The love has already been invented. We just have to access it. And this love comes to us as an inheritance from our patriarchs. Okay, so in order to... We want to harness this love. This love is what we call the atomic bomb. This is how Rabbi Steinsaltz puts it. He says, this love is atomic energy. Atomic energy can split worlds. But in order to create useful energy, we have to access it in a, in a different kind of way. So we have this love that's a bomb. It's in our essence. But we want to access it on a day-to-day -day level. And um, this is, reminds me of the story of Rabbi Eliezer ben Dertaya that I probably told the story across before. And Rabbi Eliezer ben Dertaya was a huge sinner. In fact, the Talmud says about him that he never encountered a woman a harlot without you know, using her services. He was so bad. And one time, welcome. Thank you. One time, one of these w women said to him, you are so bad. You can never change. Nothing's gonna ever work for you. There's no hope for you. You're just a lost cause. And I guess coming from this woman, it really affected him. And he sat down, he first called out to different forces in nature, which is symbolic and there's meaning behind it. He called to the hills and the valleys, pray for me. And they said, how could we pray for you? We are in need of mercy ourselves. He called to different forces in nature and said, pray for me. And they said, sorry, we can't pray for you. We need to pray for ourselves. And then he said, if that's the case, then the matter is dependent only upon me. And he sat down and he put his head between his knees and he cried. And he cried in such anguish that he died. And when he died and his soul came up, it said, make way for Rabbi Elazar ben Rodaya. We're calling this sinner who lived his whole life in sin. At that moment of teshuva, he did such a complete and thorough teshuva that they called him Rabbi Elazar ben Rodaya. Now, when Rabbi Huda Hanasi, who in the Talmud is called Rabbi, when Rabbi heard the story, he cried. And he said, there's somebody who acquires his, wor his world, the next world, in one moment. Sha'a means an hour, but it, it could also mean a moment. And it also means turn. Like it says, Vayisha Hashem el Hevel, Hashem turned to Hevel. In one turning, one wrenching moment, heart-wrenching moment, where he turned himself around, he was able to acquire his world. So... I heard Rabbi Shochat speak about this, and he said, why is Rabbi crying? Elizabeth ben Nerdaya acquired his world in one moment. Why is that a reason to cry? Be happy for Elazar ben Nerdaya. Why is Rabbi crying? Rabbi was crying because he said, look what this man was able to accomplish in one moment of teshuva, in one atomic bomb of energy. 
if he would have accessed that moment, if that, he would have accessed that energy on a day-to-day -day ba basis, he could have transformed the entire universe with that type of energy. And here, he died in that energy. The point is not to die in the energy. The point is to take the energy, tap into it, and use it in our everyday life. So in order to access this love, which we all have, we have to know about this love first. So there's four things that we're going to have to find out about this love. Okay. First, we must preface a clear and precise explanation the origin of this love. Which level of the soul this stems from? The regular love of Hashem that we have, we know where it comes from. It comes from Bina. Bina is our power for meditation. When we meditate on Hashem, we're able to then use our da'as to focus deeply on it and it activates our emotions. So we know where regular love for Hashem comes from. It comes from the power of meditation. We don't know what activates this Ahava Mesuteris, this hidden love. In order to access it, we have to know how do we activate it. So that's point one. We want to know how do we activate this love. The next thing that we want to know about this love, and it's still in the same sentence, Vi'inyana, its character. Meaning what sort of striving this love constitutes. Every love strives for something. There is a love of Hashem which seeks unity with Hashem while remaining still a separate entity, a soul clothed in a body. There is another kind of love which is a yearning for self-extinction and so forth. What drive is contained in this love which is in our inheritance? We're actually finally going to answer this question, not in this chapter, in next chapter, in chapter 19. But we want to know what does this love seek? Every love, love seeks something. If somebody like loves music, what is it that they love in the music? What do they want from the music? So for, for somebody who like, has this love and wants to hear music a lot, usually it's they want to feel the certain uplifted ecstasy in the soul that they get from the music. Or if there's you know, a very fun friend that they like to hang around, there's a certain thrill that they seek in the relationship. So what is it that our soul seeks in this love of Hashem? What is the defining property of this love? And, and we will answer that in next chapter, so don't hold your breath. <laughs> And also, how did this love become our inheritance? Love is not inherited. Parents bequeath many different things to their children. They, they give them their beauty, they give them their height, they give them certain characteristics. They can inherit their smarts or their aptitude for music. But dispositions are inherited. How are relationships inherited? Just because you have a friend, it doesn't mean your children will have that friend. And furthermore, even let's say, um, two beautiful parents don't necessarily have all beautiful children. You know, there's certain qualities that some children inherit or others don't. And here we're saying that this love is inherited in every single Jewish person, no matter who he is. How is love inherited? So that's another thing that we have to understand. How is love inherited? And finally, also, how is fear incorporated in it? Because in order to serve Hashem properly, we don't just need love. We need fear. And the author began this chapter saying, it's very close to us to keep all the mitzvahs of the Torah. Remember that we said that in order to keep the positive mitzvahs, we need love. In order from, to refrain from doing a transgression, we need fear. This love must also have fear in it. How is fear included in it? Okay. So let's summarize what we said until now. We said that the, to keep the Torah very well, not just in thought, not just in thought, and not just in speech, and not just in action, but actually in your very heart, that it's actually who you are. No matter what your capabilities are, it is very near to you. It's absolutely accessible to you, and you have to know that this, you have something inside of you, no matter who you are, that it is a hidden love. Every single Jew has a hidden 
love to Hashem. So now we need to understand, now there were four things that we want to understand. In order to access this love, there were four things that we needed to understand. We had to know what activates this love, Sherish Ha'ava. We had to know Indiana, what are its properties? What does this love seek? So what activates this love? What soul power gets this love going? What does this soul love want? What does it want? Then we had to know how is it possible that we inherited this love? And finally, we want to know how is fear included in this love? So now we're going to answer question C. How did we inherit this love? Sure. Isn't that part of him that we carry? That is part of him that we carry. Hi, Lolly, welcome. That is part of him that we carry, and that is a point in the answer. So you're definitely hitting gold. And the answer is coming up right here, and that has to do with the neshama. You have to remember that, okay, this is uh, not politically correct, and the people who are the most uncomfortable with what I'm going to say right now are, in fact, Jewish people. But Jewish people are different than any other people. We don't want to admit it. We want to say that's not true. Look what non-Jewish writers and thinkers have said about Jewish people throughout history. Now, it's not, a, it's not an exclusivity. Anybody could become Jewish. But once you are Jewish, it's not a racial thing. We have Jewish people of every race, color, and, well, not creed, but every race and color, we have Jewish people. So, I actually creed too, because there are Jewish people who you know, as if believe in other religions. So there is a certain property of the Jewish people that is unique. If you look at the writings of different thinkers, for example, and now that's eluding me, um, what's his name? Uh, Mark Twain, Mark Twain, Tolstoy, there's a few others. And there's like a common thread in what they're saying. They're saying that the Jew embodies transcendence. One of these thinkers, an English man, I believe, he said, a person who has not learned to think like a Jewish person has not learned to think at all. It's not a Jewish person who said that. We would never dare say something like that. It was a non-Jewish person who said that. And what they're pointing to is there's, there's something transcendent about the Jewish person. They're a Jew, no matter, one of them said that no matter how like, lowly that Jewish person is, they always are trying to accomplish something. There's a certain existential anxiety that a Jewish person has that other people don't have. We're always seeking a certain form of transcendence, whatever that may be. Now, are you going to say that only Jewish people seek transcendence? No, of course not. All religions have a certain thing where they want to transcend. Two things about that. First of all, Jewish people, even the ones who don't even want to call themselves Jewish, they want to call themselves atheists, there's something about them that gives them this unrest. They're just not happy. They can, they can make all the money in the world. They can accomplish, and accomplish, but there's something niggling in their soul that says, this is not enough. There's something, there has to be something more. And um, another thing is, Jewish transcendence, according to Jewish religion, is different. Because in any other religion, to transcend means to escape this world and to reach something higher. Jewish transcendence means to escape the mundanity of the world, to become aware of a higher reality, and then to bring it back down into this world to show how there's nothing that is devoid of Hashem. Hashem is present in everything. So Jewish transcendence is not about escape. To escape is already a cop-out. We'd love to escape, 
but we're not allowed to escape. We have to take what we got from our higher place of awareness and then bring it down. And then when we feel the need to escape again, take our higher level and bring it down again. So what we're discussing now is the unique property of the Jewish person and how we were able to inherit this type of love for Hashem. So, the explanation is as follows. The patriarchs were truly the chariot of Hashem, meaning they were completely subservient to him and had no other will but the divine will, just as a chariot has no will of its own, but is directed solely by the will of the rider. So what does this mean that the patriarchs were a chariot? So our, our, the Medras teaches us that just like Hashem has a chariot above, described in the, the prophecy of Ezekiel, Yechazkel Hanavi describes the vision that he saw of Hashem, of God, and he describes a chariot. And on top of the chariot is the throne. Now, what, is it, what are these angels that hold the chariot, that hold the throne? They are, they are called the chariot. So the angels who hold the throne are called the chariot. And why are they called the chariot? They are, you look at them, you are aware of Hashem. They are what bring the consciousness of the divine. That's in the upper realms. The Midrash says that down here, our patriarchs were the ones who held the divine throne, meaning that they brought the awareness and the consciousness of Hashem to the people around them. Just by experiencing one of the patriarchs, being in one of their company, that you just knew there was God. They were the ones who totally expressed divinity. They were the ones who upheld the throne of Hashem. So that's one aspect of what it means that they were the chariot. But how did that express itself in their everyday behavior? That's another thing of chariot. Uh, is that our emotions? I'm sorry, what? Is it our emotions that are holding? The chariot? Well, specifically, it is the forefathers that are called the chariot. And not the forefathers, and also the fourth leg to the chariot is David HaMelech. Now, interestingly enough, there are the seven shepherds. I mean, look, it says about Moshe Rabbeinu, that he spoke to Hashem face to face. Nobody else had the type of relationship with Hashem. There was never another prophet like Moshe who had this type of knowing of Hashem that no other prophet had, and yet he is not considered the chariot. And then there's David Hamelach, David, King David, who you know had his as if struggles that we don't understand, but on a very different level, and yet he is considered one of the legs of the chariot. Uh, Rabbi Steinzel speaks about this, and he explains that those who were part of the chariot, it was like they experienced a metamorphosis and a new line came from them. So the patriarchs, they experienced a complete transformation, and then a new line came from them. The Jewish people came from the tr- patriarchs. The Davidic dynasty came, came from King David. So these are beings who experienced a complete transformation and created as if a new form of being. Like, for example, when we're talking about um, how is it that we inherit love, we have to understand that there's just, just like, you know, parents bequeath certain traits to their children. So they bequeath beauty, they bequeath, bequeath a talent for music, they bequeath intelligence. But every sing, whatever they bequeath, not all their children will get that. But what will all their children get? Every child of a human being is a human being. That's what they will get from their child, parents, no matter what. It is a rule that humans give birth to humans. In the same way, once, once our forefathers underwent this type of transformation to the point that they became Hashem's chariot, the transformation that they experienced, they became a different kind of being. So no matter what 
their child is going to get from them, they're going to get this new essence that they have. Just like humans will always give birth to humans, these parents are always going to give birth to these type of people who have this innate love for Hashem. So that is what the chariot is. Now, explaining what is the character of a chariot, so Kabbalah explains that just like a chariot has no will of its own, the rider sits on it, you get in your car and the car doesn't say, okay, well I want to go to Whole Foods, where do you want to go? It doesn't work that way. You get in the car and you say, you know, hey, we're going to take the kids to school today. You don't say it, you just go and the car goes with you. Our forefathers were so in tune to the divine will, they had no will of their own. In fact, one of the Hasidic masters, and speaking of the story of Akedas Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, where God told Abraham, bring your son to me as a sacrifice. And one of the things that it says in this story, in this narrative, it says, he sent his hand to slaughter his son. Who sends their hand? Who speaks like that? You don't say, I sent my hand. He, you could, he slaughtered his son, or he took his hand to slaughter his son. Why send a hand? And that was because Abraham was so in tune to the divine will, his body never acted not in congruence with the divine will. Whatever Hashem wanted, that's what he did. And yet suddenly he found it difficult to slaughter Isaac. Now that was because actually the divine intention was not to slaughter Isaac. So his body was in tune to the divine intention that it is not to slaughter Isaac, but he was, nevertheless, God told him slaughter Isaac, and his hand was not automatically moving like it would do normally to fulfill the divine will. So he had to send his hand. It's like, hand, you don't want to slaughter him, but you're going to have to. Go. And so he had to, as if, command his hand. The reason why his hand wasn't doing it was because he was a chariot, and he was so in tune to the divine will that he would not be slaughtering Isaac because that's not what Hashem wanted. So they were so in tune to the divine will. Even the blink of an eyelid was in consciousness with God. We can't imagine that because it's a whole different level of consciousness. But they were so in tune with Hashem that their body was just a chariot. It had no will of its own. My friend once told me a story of the two Hasidic brothers, very famous. One of them is actually our ancestor. It's Rabbi Zusha of Anapoli and Rabbi Elimelech Milizhensk. They were two holy brothers and they were once walking together. They used to wander a lot as like itinerant beggars. You know, nobody knew who they were. And they changed a lot of Jewish communities with their love and their caring. And um, once they were walking, and suddenly Reb Zusha collapses on the floor. And Reb looks at him like, hey, what's up, you know? And he said, he helps him up and he says, what were you just doing? And he said, for one moment, I actually thought I was walking by myself. And so I dropped. There's no such thing as walking by yourself. You walk because you have divine energy that animates you. But our forefathers were on a level that this couldn't even happen to them. Their whole conscious was a chariot for Hashem. So because they underwent this transformation, something new happened for them. The Al-Kain, Zachu Lahamshech, Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama, Levneim, Acharem, Ad, Aylam, Therefore, they merited the privilege of drawing down for all subsequent generations of their descendants forever a nefesh, ruach, and neshama from the ten holy sefirot of the four worlds, atzilas, briah, yetzirah, and asiya, in which, in which of the four worlds and from which sefirah within these worlds does the soul originate? Each individual according to his level and according to his deeds. So 
Because they underwent this transformation, they now were able to bequeath to their children forever a divine soul. Now you could say one second. It says in the Talmud that the Jewish souls preceded creation. It was part of create before creation even happened. Hashem already had the idea of Jewish soul. So what does it mean that they were able to draw down this divine soul for their children? It was definitely part of the divine plan that Jewish people would be. But because of their actions, they merited to be the forefathers of this na- of this nation. So, we, what we're going to have to explore now is two things. First of all, that a soul comes from one of the ten holy sefirot. So there's ten sefirot, and each soul comes from specific. We all have all of them in within us, but we originate from specifically one of them. And then there's four worlds, which we'll talk about more in depth next class. And so our soul will originate from one of these worlds. So. Which world does the soul come from? Which sephira does this come from? Every soul is different. It's different according to the level that he was bequeathed at birth. And also, we can undergo changes because of our service of Hashem. Our soul will now reach a new level of consciousness. So, no matter what kind of soul we have, though, no matter which world, no matter which sephira, our soul comes from, has this divine spark, which we will talk about next class. I'm going to summarize what we said until now, and then we're going to open up class to questions and discussion. So we said that we were discussing how is it possible that uh, this comes out as an inheritance, and we said it's because our forefathers were veritably the chariot of Hashem. They lived with such a consciousness of Hashem that they had no will of their own, and they, they brought the divine idea to the world that now they merited to draw down for all of their descendants forever, a holy soul. And we will discuss this further next class. Okay? Class is over. Anybody who would like to run away can run away. And now we're talking. Is it our uh, goal for each person to have their body a chariot? Yes. So that but we can't, most of us cannot actually achieve that. So ultimately, we all want to be a chariot. And we'll, we will talk about this later in further chapters, chapter 35. We're not able to achieve this type of chariot for the most part. You know, Mashiach's going to come and everything's going to change. And when Mashiach comes, it's just going to happen suddenly. It's just all of a sudden going to happen. You know, Hashem, it's so part of Jewish religion and we forget how part of it it is. We dive in for Mashiach three times every single day and all of a sudden... He's just going to come. And when that comes, we're, there's going to be absolute transformation. But until that time, we will try to be a chariot. But to achieve the level of unity that the patriarchs achieved with Hashem is pretty much impossible for most of us. But you never know until you try. So <laughs> we need to try. Oh, that's such a good metaphor. Like a conveyor, a chariot conveys. So in both senses of the word, you know, contains and it gives over and but I, I hope you could speak a little more to, or at all, to um, another kind of love, which is a yearning for self-extinction. That got me a little bit alarmed. What, what is that about? So a love, this actually is part of this kind of love, and that is that, this is a, a teaser for chapter 19, but here, normally love is not about self-extinction. It's we love ourselves and we want more for ourselves. And even in love for Hashem, what do we seek? We seek divine pleasure. But there's a unique quality of this love that seeks nothing for itself at all. It would rather just be united with Hashem. And it's very, obviously very powerful. It's so powerful that it even can cause extinction. But that's the nature of this love. I wonder why they gave that away. Not good. Well, this is like the two 
sons of Aaron? Yes. Who made the unlawful fire, etc., etc., and touched the ark and expired. That's right. They expired. And although that uh, was perhaps the most beautiful sin in all of history, again, as Rabbi Steinzal says, it's still considered a sin. Because for Jewish people, to escape the world is not... We love Hashem so much, and what Hashem wants the most is that He should be a parent in this physical world. Our job is not to run away. Our job is to, although we want to run away and be conscious of the fact that we'd love to leave, we're here on a mission, and we want to make this world a place where the divine is totally apparent, and that's each of us has that mission. In this week's Parsha, we talk about the land being divided according to lottery, that's how it is with our soul too. Our soul, we all have a mission, a general mission of the Jewish people to bring the divine consciousness to this world, but each of us by lottery has our own little mission, not little, big, because just as Maimonides writes, it could take one, we have to see ourselves as the entire world is equal balance on a scale, and our one deed tips the destiny of the entire world for the better. So we each hold the destiny of the world in our hands, even with our own, what we seem to think is a little mission. We are not that little after all. <laughs> we are not that little as long as we think we're little. As soon as we think we're big, <laughs> we're very little. <laughs> well, thank you. I definitely feeling still young, not feeling yeah. big yet. Yeah. I'm God really Good to see you, Cheryl. Thank you for coming. coming up. Yeah. And I want to personally invite everybody to join me Saturday night on Shabbat.